Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Jubilee Church Teesside. Those of you who've been logging in over the last few months will know that we've been working our way through the Book of Esther, which tells the story about a young Jewish girl who came to be instrumental in the saving of her people from an act of whole-scale genocide. We're now approaching the end of the book and the final resolution, but I wanted to start by reminding us all of Gavin's opening comments about this biblical epic and Chris's message two weeks ago. This is a story of God's sovereignty. God is always in control. He's always protecting us and working things together for our good, even when we can't see his hand at work or our circumstances seem to indicate otherwise. We've heard about the main characters over the last few weeks, and we've found out about the qualities that set Esther and Mordecai apart from that enemy of the Jews, Haman. Esther and Mordecai displayed courage and trust in God and took great personal risks in allowing God to work through them. As Chris also reminded us, these two knew that God had placed them where he wanted them, and they were willing to allow God to work through them. In contrast, Haman was a man full of arrogance and pride, who only thought of his own self-advancement, grabbing at power and prestige, whatever the cost to others. The chapter that we're focusing on today is bringing the story to its final conclusion. We've already seen Haman get his comeuppance in the previous chapter. He's been executed and now his estate and position have been given to Mordecai. Let's read Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole set he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name, on behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. 
I'd like to draw out some points from these verses about God's sovereignty and make some comparisons to a couple of other characters from Jewish history in the Old Testament to help us see how God loves to use people who faithfully trust him. Let's give this some historical context first of all. The events of the book of Esther took place around 470 years before the birth of Christ, at a time when the Jewish people had begun to be allowed to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding. Zerubbabel had taken the first wave of returned exiles back to Jerusalem around 537 to 516 BC, but the second return led by Ezra and the third led by Nehemiah hadn't yet taken place. This makes Esther's place pivotal in Jewish history. Without her intervention and the edict we see issued by Mordecai here in verse 10, it's quite likely that the rebuilding could never have been achieved. The attackers of Jerusalem we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah would have been protected by law and the Israelites would not have been allowed to defend themselves. So the events in this book have far-reaching consequences for God's chosen people beyond the city of Susa, both those in exile across the vast Persian Empire and those at home in Israel. Let's focus for a moment on what Esther shows us about how God is the ultimate king, in control over all authorities, both secular and Christian. It says in Proverbs 21 verse 1 that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. We might assume that this is referring exclusively to the hearts of leaders who acknowledge God, but the Bible doesn't support this view. When we read the account of Israel's rebellion and exile, it's very clear that when mighty imperial rulers such as Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Xerxes and Artaxerxes decree the exile and return of the Jews to Israel, this is fulfilment of many prophecies and warnings given by Old Testament prophets from Moses onwards. These kings did not acknowledge the Hebrew God as their personal sovereign, although Nebuchadnezzar does later in his life, as you can read in Daniel chapter 4. But they are used by him to achieve his purposes. In some cases, they specifically recognise the hand of God at work for his chosen nation, Israel. For example, Ezra 7 verse 23, Artaxerxes, who's the son of Xerxes, writes a letter saying, Why should God's wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? Clearly, he sees that it will be much better for him to go along with and support the work of God on behalf of Israel than to try to resist it. God is working behind the scenes throughout history to orchestrate and steer events for the good of his chosen people. In the Old Testament, this is the Jewish nation, but the New Testament clearly indicates that now we, the church globally, are the people of God, a holy nation and a royal priesthood, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. At a time when we might be tempted to think that the global church is powerless, God's word says otherwise. We are called to trust him and to be personally courageous, like Esther and Mordecai, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2 verse 10. With our church buildings closed and meeting together prevented by the COVID-19 pandemic, we are called to keep on sharing the good news of Jesus with our families and friends and advocating for the voiceless and the vulnerable in our societies. We need to keep praying and seeking God for his way through. (coughs) One practical way that we can do this right now would be to pray for our government. As our leaders face 
difficult decisions each day, managing a national crisis and balancing the economy, let's ask God to give them wisdom and pray that they will come to know him personally. Wouldn't it be great if our country was once again known as a Christian nation? Mordecai displays his confidence in God's complete control over human history and governments when he tells Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther 4 verse 14. As we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we can see that God is working through human history towards the ultimate salvation brought about by the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, or if you have questions about him, if you are unsure of your place or purpose in life, can I encourage you to try Alpha? At Alpha, you have an opportunity to explore, free from criticism and with no strings attached, just what the Christian faith is all about. Our next online course begins in February, and it's the perfect place to bring all your questions. But if you can't wait that long, please feel free to put a comment in the chat or ask the person who invited you along this morning. In the book of Esther, there is one person who definitely doesn't have any authority or power to wield, and that's Esther herself. She has royal position, but as a woman in the Persian Empire, even though she's a queen, she belongs to her husband. And Esther cannot even approach Xerxes uninvited on pain of death, and yet she does exactly this, not once, but twice. We read in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 8 that Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to her, and she rose and stood before him. It had probably been around two months since the events described in Esther chapter 7, but although Haman was dead and Mordecai was promoted, the irrevocable law that Haman had put in place remained. Maybe Esther and Mordecai had been waiting for Xerxes to do something about it, but clearly he has no sense of urgency to do so. So Esther once again pleads with the king for her people, and the words she chooses are very telling. If it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it's the right thing to do, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches of Haman the Agagite. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? These aren't the words of someone who knows they're entitled to speak. Esther is asking from a place of vulnerability and powerlessness. She has no right to speak to the king. She has no right to demand he do anything for her. But what she does is use her influence to change the king's attitude, to make something that didn't matter to him matter to him by association with her. She pleads on behalf of her people and her family. Even though she's an orphan and her, she and her only direct family, her uncle Mordecai, would appear to be safe, she chooses to identify herself with her people who stand condemned to die. She calls them family, a testimony to the strength of her commitment to her Jewish heritage. Esther loves her people and she advocates for them with the king. She uses her royal position, even though she is effectively powerless, to influence government. Esther recognises that she is under authority and she works within the constraints to bring about change. 
Although the account doesn't say so, it's quite likely that Esther used the same strategy this time before approaching the king as she did before in chapter 4, praying and fasting before making her request, taking advice, making a plan. And once again, God gives her success. Xerxes effectively says, do what you like, whatever seems good to you. He reminds Esther and her uncle Mordecai that as his new second in command, he has the authority to make a new law which is exactly what he does, a law which allows the Jews to defend themselves if they are attacked. Just as Jesus didn't come to abolish or take away the law, but to fulfil it, if you read Matthew 5 verse 17, so Mordecai's new law doesn't take away the original, it provides another way through. Jesus died for us so as to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. Romans 3 verse 26. Jesus has become for us the way through where there seemed to be no way. We could not escape the law by our own efforts. It took an act of God to make salvation possible. Again, why not try Alpha if you want to find out more about this? Esther reminds me of the only other female character in the Bible to have a book named after her, Ruth, who was mother of Jesse and ancestor to King David and through him to Jesus. Ruth, a woman in exile from the land of her birth, who put her trust in God and followed wise counsel. Ruth, a woman with no authority of her own, no rights, who put herself under the protection of God and courageously left all she knew to look after her mother-in-law. Ruth, a woman who had a plan which involved personal risk and a whole lot of trust in God and who was rewarded for it. Another parallel that I saw as I read through the book of Esther was with Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, sold into slavery in a foreign land and subjected to many injustices. He rose to power after many years of diligent service and demonstrations of his wisdom and integrity. Joseph became second in command to Pharaoh and God used him to prevent the starvation of the nation of Egypt and to protect the line of Abraham. You can read his story in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Joseph famously told his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. That's from the New Living Translation. Esther similarly comes to royal position for such a time as this. And in all three of these accounts, Ruth, Joseph and Esther, it's obedience in the faith of great personal sacrifices which unlocks God's blessings for them and for others. I recall that at the beginning of 2020, Jeremy Simpkin spoke to Jubilee about being a fruitful vine running up over a wall. And this was a direct quote from the prophecy about Joseph in Genesis 40 verse 22. Jeremy spoke about how the opposition Joseph faced in his life was precisely what allowed him to become so fruitful, just as a vine needs to push against a structure in order to climb up. Like Joseph, Esther encountered opposition, danger and political power plays. Like Joseph, the outcome of her perseverance was salvation for many others. We see time and again in the Bible that God blesses the proper use of power and influence power and influence used under his direction for the benefit of others and the defence of the vulnerable. I want to put this message into perspective by reading from 1 Peter 1. 
Peter's letter is written to the church in exile, as Esther, Ruth and Joseph all were, and it encourages Christians to persevere through difficulties. Peter says in verses 6 and 7, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. 2020 has certainly been a challenging year for many of us. We have all faced unexpected, unchosen and difficult situations. Lockdown, missing contact with family and friends, some of us losing loved ones, battles with feelings of isolation and hopelessness, loss of jobs, decreased income. And no one knows what the future holds as we go forward into 2021. But amidst all this uncertainty, as Christians, we have a sure and certain hope to cling to, Jesus. I trust that God will continue to be faithful to me as he has through my whole life so far. Things are not how I would choose them to be right now. But as I look back on all the other unexpected and unchosen events and circumstances that God has walked with me through, I am confident he will continue to walk with me. To give a personal example, when I qualified as a teacher in 2013, I watched as all my fellow trainees secured jobs and, at and I attended multiple interviews myself. Repeatedly, I was unsuccessful in securing a permanent position and the constant knocks to my self-confidence really got me down. In the end, I was one of only two from my class not to get a job and I ended up working as a supply teacher for the first year, meaning that I couldn't complete the final stage of my training, my NQT year, and I felt like I'd failed. Eventually, I got a long-term supply position and I felt settled in a school, but when a permanent job in that school came up, I was again unsuccessful in my application. Some of you will know the pain and rejection of repeated and unsuccessful interviews. It's hard. However, I did finally get a job in the school where I've now been for the last six years. I'm part of a small team in a rural Church of England school with a Christian head teacher and a high proportion of children with very specific learning needs and difficulties. And I believe that this is the place God had for me all along. I remember Chris spoke about knowing your place and remember remaining where God has called us to be. The experience that I've just described two years of rejection at a time when I was still coming to terms with the end of my marriage has taught me that I can trust that my Father in Heaven has good plans for my life and that as I remain faithful to Him, He will remain faithful to me. I trust that He can work all things together for my good, even when I can't see how. As we each persevere like our biblical role models through whatever difficulties we may be facing this new year, as we hold on to our confidence that God is ultimately in control and working for our good, our lives become a powerful example, pointing to our good God and glorifying him. Esther chapter 8 closes by describing the outcome of Mordecai and Esther's new law. In verse 16 and 17 it says, For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour, in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. 
Mordecai's edict goes out allowing the Jews to defend themselves and the result is whole-scale celebration. The city of Susa rejoiced, not just the Jews, and many became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I was a bit confused when I first read this. Did people convert to Judaism because they didn't want to be killed? No. This mass conversion happens during a time of feasting and celebration. All of Persian society could see that God's hand of favour was on his people and they decided to join in with the blessing. Just as Abraham and his descendants were called to be a blessing to the nations, so we, the church, as God's people today, are also called to be a blessing. By setting an example of lives lived with confident trust in God's ultimate goodness and control of all things, and by using our influence for the benefit of others, we will see God's kingdom grow across Teesside and our nation.